teaching perspective that everybody is able to make sure then you go back and read this gospel that you have some sort of format and framework to read it from is to know that uh, chapters 1 through 12 are the, uh, the book of signs it's called and the uh, remaining chapters 13 on are the, is the book of glory where we see the glory of Christ because Jesus is uh, through these signs, these seven signs is presenting himself to us in a glorious way uh, and as the prologue gives us those lenses to be able to look at all these sections, we see that that's the uh, John, the, the, the disciple, the Apostle John's uh, great, great joy is to be able to know that he has seen his glory as, uh, as the disciples did as he writes in his beginning and introduction of 1 John. He's, they've beheld his glory. They've, they're just uh, amazed that God chose them to be able to see that glory in Jesus. And I hope that for you and I as well, uh, for you and me, it's, it's this um, uh, opportunity to rejoice in that same, same task and that same great benefit of being able to see this, this blessing of being able to see who Jesus is. Um, this, this change is a transition now from his public ministry, as we looked at last week, coming to a close in a very profound way. And I, last week, I, as I remarked, it was like, I'm sure... Uh, getting fed out of a dump truck. Uh, some of you had remarked it was not that it was complaints. It was more of like, wow. Um, and I hope the wow was as we go back just briefly and take a look at that, what that ending of Jesus' ministry was as we see this functional judgment of Jesus in verse 36 that he departs and, and, and he, he hides himself, which is not just, you know, like John doesn't use just empty words or idle words. John uses words that have profound impact. And again, this functional body language of Jesus as he departs and turns his back on the temple, as he departs and turns his back on, on the Jews, we see that this is a functional judgment that Jesus is saying enough is enough. And then we see also in this chapter, not only the functional judgment of Jesus, we see Jesus, um, I mean John, concluding the public ministry of Jesus by telling us of two very difficult but very profoundly biblical subjects of the judicial hardening of the heart and of also the bondage of the will, which are profound subject matters that I tried to bring to you last week and show you that as we looked at this, we saw that Israel could not believe because God did not allow them to believe. God hardened their hearts. God made them dull because of their disobedience and because of their hearts and because they desired not God and not Jesus, but they desired their own glory and they desired to have things the way they wanted to. And so the judicial hardening of God is, as we looked at in Romans, is that God gives them over. He gives them over to their passions and their desires and gives them the gods that they want to worship and the idols they want to worship and makes them into that. Deaf and dumb and dead. And that's what God has done for Israel here, though as we go back to Romans 9, 10, and 11, we see that certainly God has a plan for Israel and God has a plan for the Jews. Uh, we're, we're thankful for that. But we see that God hardens not only them, but this is a... This is a, a, a hardening of humanity itself that we see God, uh, by, for some reason, as someone said to me last week, which I was blessed and pleased by, is, is the same thing I was thinking, that how many times did we say no to the Lord? How many times in our life have we said no to Jesus, and then all of a sudden God changed our hearts? Why didn't he do this judicial hardening upon us? And the answer is, I don't know why. I can't tell you why. Is by his sovereign grace, he changed my heart and changed your heart and gave us this, this effectual calling, this efficacious grace, this uh, special love that he's given to his own people. And then we see that this, this term or this phrase of the bondage of the, of the will, as I talked about briefly last week, that our wills are not free, and we see that uh, verse 42 says, Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for the fear of the Pharisees, we see that they, they did not confess who Jesus was. Their will was not free. There was, there was, there's always someone, something 
vying for our, our attention and our passions. And so uh, we see here that this is even uh, just from this verse that we would pass over lightly. We realize that we are not free. We are captives. We are in bondage. And so until God changes our will to desire him, we remain dead until he livens up uh, us and gives us new life. Nicodemus, you must be born again. So after that powerful ending, which I hope you haven't cracked any teeth on as you chewed upon it last week, but found it to be something of questions that you have asked for in the past and, um, and wondered about, as I told you, how I responded to that understanding of God's uh, election and God's sovereignly uh, choosing and uh, how he, has, he does that in his own will and own way. Uh, even though we don't understand it, we have to see that it's in this book from cover to cover. Why did he choose the Israelites? Why not the Perizzites, sir? Why not the Jebusites? You know, why not those guys? Nothing great about the Israelites. In fact, they didn't even exist until he created them. Why not them? I don't know why. You know, if my kids were in a, if my family and, and a, bu- a bunch of people were in an accident and our car was on fire... Who would I go after first? I'd go after the people I love the most. My family, my children. Not that I didn't want to save them. But that's where my attention is. And this is where we see this special love of God that he gives to, as Jesus says, in, as John then says to us in his transition in chapter 13, as we read verses 1 through 17, this special kind of love. Now Jesus is done with the signs. Jesus' public ministry is over with. This is a time of Passover before he dies. He's now in the upper room with these disciples for several chapters, but only for a very short period of time, even though there's many verses here. It's only for a short period of time, but most of the book is spent upon this time. Now it's not to the world, it's to his own. And we see how God has turned his back and saying, his own mean a lot to me. And this is and notice, notice the phrases and the words that John uses to describe this. this. Now this ministry, this upper room ministry, this intimate ministry that he has with his disciples and ultimately with us. Chapter 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, notice time indicators are very important here. They've been important throughout this entire book. They're important even now. As we're talking about this Passover, that Jesus is going to die because he's the Passover lamb. It says, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, which we heard, to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world. That's why God so loved the world, because his own is in the world. He loved them to the end. And we'll hopefully talk about that. During supper, when the devil had already put into the hearts of Judas, in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing, listen to these words of God's sovereignty and Jesus' understanding of time and history and destiny. The devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, very deliberate phrases there, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel and tied it around his waist. Then he poured water in a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, you're going to wash my feet? You're going to wash my feet, Jesus? And Jesus answered him, what I'm doing, you do not understand now, but afterward, afterward you will understand. Which is a great insight that we are given. And which is encouraging for us, is it not? One of these phrases that kind of wrapped around me when we read this. Peter said to him, never in a million years, Jesus... 
And that's really what it says here. Never until, it says, you'll never wash my feet in a million years or unto the ages, it is in the original language, unto the ages, no way, Jose, will you wash my feet. You think Peter was trying to say something there? Poor Peter, you know, El Fudo and El Mouthful. But he's honest, is he not? Peter said to him, you'll never wash my feet, Jesus. And then Jesus answered him, well, Peter, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter now doesn't understand what he's talking about. He said, Lord, not only my feet, but my hands also in my head and every, just give me a bath. The impetuousness of Peter. Jesus said to him, The one who has obeyed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him, and that was why he said, Not all of you are clean. Thank you, John, for that commentary. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, Notice we have somebody laying aside something and now resuming. Does that sound like maybe something biblical? Going on about who Jesus is, laying aside and resuming his place. He said to them, do you understand what I have done for you? As a good teacher would ask these questions. You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right. For so I am. If I then, a cause and effect, if then, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you a pattern, an example, that you also should do as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you, knew these, if you know these things, then blessed are you if you do them. Let's pray. Dear God, we, we do, again, stand in awe of the sovereignty of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We stand in, 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 in awe of your providence, of every piece of time, of every second of time. We thank you, Father, as we have seen today by writing this lighting this Advent wreath, uh, candle about preparing, we, we already remarked upon the fact that you are involved in all of history. You are involved in everyone's life. You are again involved in everything because without you, Jesus, nothing would have been created. So you are involved in everything. I pray, Father, that you would allow us to be moved again by the story of Jesus washing the feet of his disciples, that, Lord, we would have our attentions directed on the primary cause, the primary reason for it, but also the secondary uh, outcrop, the, the, out, the response to that. That, Father, you would have your way with us this morning by the power of the Holy Spirit as we read this about Jesus, that we will, again, as the Greeks had asked to come and the Gentiles had come to see Jesus, sir, we would, we, we would see Jesus, Lord, that we would desire to, to do that today. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the timing of this is important. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus, we had heard that Jesus, the Gentiles, the Greeks were coming to see Jesus, and Jesus said, oh, now it's the hour, as we saw in chapter 12. Now is the hour for me to go and to give my life. His hour had come to depart from the world. Now notice, he comes to depart out of this world. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the full extent, as the NIV would say. He loved them to the full extent of his love. That's what it means. He loved them perfectly to the end. That's the word meaning either end or the word perfect, that this word here is end. He, he has shown his love to us and to the world because of his own being in the world through chapters 1 and 12. But now he's going to take them all the way to the rest of this book 
to the end of, of his life, to the very end of all eternity, and he's going to show the extent of his love by dying, by rising, by ascending, by protecting, by equipping. We see that, that this is who Jesus is. He loves us to the end. What a great message that is. And he not only loves us to the end, but is the full extent of his love, is now we're going to see that by his love of giving himself on a cross. That's what love is. It's not about getting what we want. It's not about God answering all of our prayers. It's not about God making our life simple. It's not about God giving us prosperity. It's not about God giving us our future rewards now. It's about Jesus dying on the cross. That's the full extent of his love. He opened his arms so wide that he died for us on the cross. That's what this Bible is teaching about love. And we're all been duped by media, by stories, by people, by our own hearts of what God's love really is about. And as I said last week, Unless we read the gospel, unless we understand what the gospel is all about, and unless we understand what this book is about, we'll go to church and be deceived about what love is. We'll be deceived about who Jesus is. We'll be deceived about what plan he has for our life. Because we go in here and we come into these doors with an agenda, folks. We come with an agenda. And the agenda is, Lord, have your way with us. Oh, no, that's not how it goes, is it? We don't come in here and ask that all the time. Sometimes we do. We're thankful when it does. But we come in here and say, oh, Lord, let me feel your love. Let me be loved today. Let me have some reason to be alive. Let me, help me through this. And I totally understand because, you know, I'm just like you. I have baggage when I walk in the door. I've got baggage in my car, in my trunk, in my attic, in my basement of my life. And so we need to have our focus on really what the gospel is. And this is what John says. John says, he loved them with the full extent of his love. And this is what this chapter 13 on are going to be. And this is what he's going to tell us. And so Jesus' public ministry is over with, but Jesus' private ministry is starting just beginning. And Jesus is not giving any more signs to the world. But he's giving another, he's giving a sign today. He's not stopped giving a sign. We have a sign in front of us by this communion, and it really means something. It really is pointing to something and someone. But Jesus is giving them a sign now of, remember what we read last week when it says that the Lord of Isaiah 53, Lord, who has believed what, you had heard, who, what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And remember we looked at Isaiah 53, and in that, that Jesus has been speaking and proclaiming, and his arm has been revealed by his sign, saying he spoke, and he, he does, but the people didn't want what Jesus said and what he does. They want him to do what they want him to do. So they never could accept the arm of the Lord. They could never expect, accept the, the, the gospel or the message that these people were proclaiming or Jesus was proclaiming because they didn't want Jesus. And until God worked in your life and my life, we didn't want Jesus. And until God works in some of you may be here today, I don't know where you are with the Lord, or people in your life, or your enemies, or the people you work with, or your neighbors, or whatever, until God sovereignly works a work in their hearts, they don't want to see Jesus either. And the, and the disciples are seeing this, and we're seeing it, that people came out to see who Jesus was, but they really weren't looking for Jesus. They were looking for some miracle worker. They were looking for some king. They were looking for some Warrior. They were looking for someone to take over politically. And so we all have an agenda. So Jesus now is showing us who he is by what? The people wanted, what one someone said, which I thought was great, some people wanted a, a throne 
and a sword. They wanted somebody carrying and bringing with them a throne and a sword. And this Messiah and this king and this savior and this one who is the king of the Jews, what does he bring? A towel and a bowl of water. Now, do you think Israel wanted that kind of savior? That's why they could not accept the message. And that's why people out there, they're looking for someone that the Bible does, says does not exist. It is a man who has come. He is king. He is Lord. He is the omnipotent God. He is the ruler of the universe. Yet he shows us who he really is. And the disciples need to see this. And you notice Peter's response here. Peter doesn't want to see who Jesus really is. That's how Je poor Peter, but he's right. Peter's response is, I mean, because look at this. He is, during this supper, we see Jesus taking the posture of something that the disciples did not think about doing, did they? Because what was a custom? A custom was, as you've read in the Bible before, a custom was that when you had guests over for dinner, you had a slave to wash people's feet. Now, people would be bathed before they came, so they wouldn't need to have their whole body washed. People would come and just, you would have a slave because a peer would never wash the feet of a peer and a, and a superior would never wash the feet of a subordinate. So only slaves would wash feet. But you notice that nobody's feet was being washed at this time. So the disciples saying, not me. It's not going to be me. I'm not going to do that. And remember how indignant Jesus was at one point where he went to the, to the Simon's house and the woman came and she wiped Jesus' feet with her tears and her hair? And Jesus says to Simon, Gee, Simon, what has everybody been out of shape for? You, guys, you didn't even wash my feet when we walked in. Nobody washed our feet. And this woman is doing this and you're appalled by her? Do you know what kind of woman? Do you know what she's doing? So it was very important. It was, a, it was an insult when you didn't have your feet washed, when you didn't say, oh, can I take your jacket? Can you get you something to drink? It was, pro, it was pro, you know, proper etiquette. And notice again we have the smell of death and the smell of, of salvation again. Remember we saw it from Mary and Bethany when she broke the perfume and filled the room up, which is pointing to the anointing of Jesus' body at his death. And in the same room, we have the smell of Judas saying, why did she spend so much money on that perfume? We could have saved, we could have used it to feed the poor, which was a bunch of malarkey. Now we see here that Judas again is in the story, and it says that the devil, during this supper, Jesus is in complete control, is going to wash the feet of Judas, the traitor, Judas who's going to turn him in, Judas who's not a follower of Jesus, Judas who's very upset with Jesus because the Jesus he is seeing is not the Jesus that he was hoping for. And so we see that Judas was not innocent, and Satan came along and saying, hey, I'll use you. It was like I talked about last week. When God hardens people's hearts, he doesn't look at an innocent group of people and he's saying, you know, I think I'm just going to harden their hearts for the heck of it. He doesn't do that. Everybody's heart is destined to be hard because we're sinners. We're born with that kind of heart. And until God superintends and God uh, intervenes in our life and, can, and makes our heart alive, our hearts are going to be dead and dead things harden. And that's what happens. And here we don't see Judas, we know, has been a kind of uh, sketchy character from the beginning. And we saw how sketchy he was with Mary, with the perfume. Now we're seeing that we see here, remember we begin, we've talked about this many times, in the beginning of John's Gospel, the prologue, it says that, the, that, that, that darkness was trying to overcome the light. And we see what happens when darkness overcomes. We see that Judas has snuffed out the light in his life. He snuffed it out. And what's left? As Bob Dylan, the theologian, said, maybe the devil, it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. And if it isn't Jesus... It's trouble. 
And so what does Judas do? Judas was tempted and said, this sounds like a good deal to me. He wasn't innocent. He was prompted and his heart was given over to Satan because he wanted to snuff out this light. He didn't want this light. Now, Jesus in complete control, as we see, he's in complete control the whole week that we look at and we're saying, oh, no, Jesus, don't go to town, don't go to Israel, don't go to Jerusalem, don't go there, they're going to kill you. We see Jesus very much, he goes, as when he was being, you know, when he was taken away, he says, oh, Judas, this, oh, this is your hour, this is the hour of darkness, go ahead, this is your time. Here we see Jesus knowing, he says, knowing that the Father, now notice these three things. Notice that, he, that God the Father had given him all things in his hands, that Jesus has complete authority over every molecule of the universe at that moment. We see that Jesus had come from God, being God in the very, uh, as it says, being with God, being God, as the prologue says. And we see that Jesus is saying that you've seen the Father, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We see Jesus uh, blatantly and openly proclaiming his deity. We, so we see his authority, we see where his origins are from, and then we see that his future place, he's going back to God. He's going back to glory. Now, he's going back different because before he came, he wasn't the redeemer. But now, when he goes back after his ascension, he is what? He is the redeemer. He's played out that role as being the redeemer. He wasn't when he came, but he is because he obeyed God. He obeyed. I don't do my own stuff. I obey the Father. The world needed, God's people needed a sacrifice, and Jesus said, take me. I'll go. Because he was the only person, the only perfect man that could placate, that could satisfy, that could propitiate our sin. So he says, he rose from the supper, laid aside his garments. Now he didn't give up being Jesus. He didn't give up being God. He didn't give up being teacher. He didn't give up being Lord. He just put on the, 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 uh, the costume or the posture of a slave. And then he, then he did this in front of them, and he goes to Peter, and Peter sees Jesus doing this, and he says to him, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. And this is where Jesus answered him, and he says, you know, Peter, and, and he says, you plural to everybody, you don't understand what's going on now. And isn't it, that's an encouragement, is it not? Because do you understand everything God is doing in your life right now? And the answer is, eh, no, you don't. I don't know what he's doing in my life some days I scratch my head and I think like Peter, no way, Jesus, you're not doing that. I mean, Jesus, I mean, Paul, Peter was, was just looking, this is, you know, the incongruity here is, you know, he's just looking at this, this is not making sense, a slave. This is Jesus who says he's God, who is the Messiah, he's the Redeemer, he's the one that God has sent, the Son of God, the one we've been longing for, and he's going to take the role of a slave? We can understand he's honesty here. But then he says, Jesus says, you won't understand it, but afterward, Peter, and you all will understand it. And that's what, folks, I believe sometimes happens in your life. Do you understand why God has done certain things in your life? And then all of a sudden you, get, you can step back. To me, it's like, a, uh, it's like an a, a impressionistic art. You know, if you stand too close to a Monet, looks like you're looking at a picture through wax paper. And then all of a sudden you stand back and you say, wow, there is a smile in that little kid's face, walking through the field with his mother with the poppies. There is, a, there is, there is some clarity here when I back up. God gives us that great gift sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes to be able to see as anybody who was, I was in New York City this week, and you look at the chaos. I was in New York City this week when they were lighting the Rockefeller, the, the tree, and having those protests. I was, near, I was in Grand Central, and I was in Times Square. At both of those times, they had the protests, and I was stupid, and I didn't know that was going on. So I was wondering, oh, where are all these police doing here? I've never seen so many police in my life. And I didn't understand what the chaos was, but I do now. 
And if I was standing on a building and looking down and I saw all these little ants and little buggies going around, I could be able to tell that car, don't go down there one because you'll never get through. But in the car, I'm going to go down that route because I don't understand what's going on. But you don't want to go down that route because there's been a construction site uh, accident or something that's dangerous. Don't go there. And we get angry. Why are they doing this now? Why do they put these signs up now? What are they fixing it now for? Don't they know that I'm busy? Why can't they do this at night when nobody's on the road? And you've never said that before, right? <laughs> so we see, you don't understand, Peter. And disciples, you don't understand, but you will. And if we don't understand now, when we get to heaven, we'll understand. That's the hope. We'll understand someday. We're not going to understand completely like God understands because you know what? We're not Mormons and we're not going to become God. So Simon Peter responds as any good human being would respond. Uh-uh, Jesus. He reacts to the situation and he says, you're not going to wash, you'll never wash my feet, Jesus. And so what does Jesus say? And he puts perspective on the Peter. And notice he puts the perspective of what he is doing. He is now uh, opening up a parable or a sign in his being the role of a slave. He is serving them of, and he is giving them a picture and a sign of something that he's going to do in a few hours. He's going to give his life. Because why? Because you needed to be purified from sin. And so Peter and I and you, we all need a bath from sin. That's what he's talking about here. Jesus saying, if I, and notice, where, notice how particular he is. He goes, if I do not wash you, does that leave any room for any other religion on the face of the earth? Answer is no. Is there any other way to God but through Jesus' death upon the cross? No. Is there any way to God and Him accept you the way that you are without someone dying for your sins? And the answer is no. So if people go to churches where they don't talk about sin, may they be misled about the gospel? And the answer is yes. And that should trouble us. Immensely trouble us. That people are attending places that are called churches and are full and they're getting fed nothing. And he says, if I do not wash you now, if I do not wash you, you have no part of me whatsoever. So again, this is the work of Jesus. Peter's going to say, then Jesus, if I need you, do it all. But notice what he says here. Peter, Jesus gives us an insight of the twelve. Or the 11. He says, Simon Peter, he goes, he says, the one who is bathed does not need to wash. If you've been in a tub, why do you need a sponge bath? If you've had a complete tub bath, only people, he says, only you need to have your feet washed. You only need to have a sponge bath. Why? Because we need once to be given for sin, forgiven for sins. We need to be totally clean. And Jesus says to him, Peter, he says, he says, but you are clean, plural. You are clean. He is looking at them as if they are already justified in Christ. He is looking at them because he knows what he's going to do. To him, it's not a, I hope I can get through this. I hope I can make this. I hope I don't chicken out. He knows he's going to the cross. He knows he's going to be brutally beaten. He knows that God's anger and wrath is going to be poured upon him. He knows that God is going to judiciously turn his back upon him. And he knows that the result of that is that you and me are justified. We have peace of God because now we are at peace with God. You see the importance there. And so he is telling Peter, Peter, you don't understand what I'm doing. But I'm telling you, you are clean. And by your, you are, he, is, he is pronouncing them clean already because he knows it's a done deal. But he knows that Judas is not clean, and he'll never be clean. And so he says to them, Peter, 
you all you need you're gonna you're totally clean you are going to need no longer what to take away sin in your life you are now going to have to have a bath a sponge bath from time to time to take away the effects of sin in your life go to first John turn with me to first John and you all know this passage it's talking about a sponge bath. Now, I bet you didn't know it was about a sponge bath, but it is about a sponge bath in light of what, you know, John wrote the Gospel of John. John is writing this one. Now he talks about a sponge bath. He says here, verse 5, chapter 1, 1 John. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Well, that excludes Judas. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus has cleansed us from all sin. There's the bath, the tub bath, or the shower. I don't care what you do, it's a body cleansing. Now here comes the sponge bath. If we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the sponge bath. And that's what Jesus is telling Peter here, that we are cleansed by the grace of God, but we sin. We continue to sin. John tells us that. Jesus is saying, your feet are only dirty, or you're, you know, you're, only, you know, you're not totally unclean now you are now cleaned but you do need to be periodically washed you realize you are sinners we need to ask God to forgive us from our sins so there is this ongoing asking God for forgiveness for our sins don't we do that don't we ask God to forgive me for the sins I've committed or when you feel that gut feeling in your heart when you know you did something you shouldn't have done and you enjoyed it that we could go and say oh Lord forgive me for that you know you're going to do it again, but you pray you know there's something wrong because that new man is within us, and the new man causes the old man to have problems. Do you see this? Do you see how important this is? And if you don't unpack it, if you don't pull it apart, you would just go, oh, yeah, it's cool. There's Jesus being a servant. It's really cool that Jesus is a servant. We can have all these wonderful little flannographs about Jesus. And we can have all these wonderful postcards and all these pictures of Jesus and all these Bible books and all this stuff about Jesus washing somebody's feet. But if we don't get the reason why the washing of the feet is important and what it's pointing to, we've walked over a million bucks to get a penny. People on the same page with me here? Okay. He says then, he goes to them, when he washed his feet, he put on his outer garments and resumed his place. Now turn with me to Philippians. Everybody knows this passage. But notice how this reflects what Jesus is doing. Verse chapter 2. So, of Philippians, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from his love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection, and any sympathy, these are all the results of being born again. These are all the results of being washed in the blood of Jesus. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is where Judas is. Judas is looking for his own interests. Judas is, is now living by darkness because he snuffed out the light, and we, in the contrast, we see Jesus, who is the light, and living by obedience to the Father. That's the contrast in this passage. Having this mind among yourselves, which is, in all, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not call equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Put aside his garments, laid aside, taking the form of a servant, 
Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. This is what this whole foot washing is about. Even to death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, which is not above everybody's name, because there are lots of Jesuses around everywhere. It's not Jesus' name that is exalted. The name that is exalted is that every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the name we remember. To the glory of God the Father. That's the difference. It's not about the name of Jesus because there are lots of men out there with the name of Jesus today. That doesn't exalt them. But Lord does. And so you notice what he did? He laid aside his place of being teacher, of being Lord, and he put on the form of a servant. And then what does he do? He's done being a servant, and he comes and he puts his back on his garments that he had and reclines at the table, though Michelangelo didn't point that out correctly. They were reclining on pillows, probably on a U-shaped table, not on a big, long table and sitting in chairs. Went back to his place of authority. Resumed his place. You see how Paul brings that whole thing? He says, but Jesus says, the way up is from the way down. That's what's exalting to God. That's what's glorifying to God. And he says, you know, you call me teacher and Lord, and you're exactly right, because that's who I am. Because he said to other people in the scriptures and the gospels, wait a minute, you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do what you say you're going to do. You call me Lord, Lord, and you just go and do whatever you want to do. And you don't even believe who I am. Jesus saying, you're right, you are. Notice Jesus is in the titles. We have, you know, we have lots of people that aren't in the titles. They don't like calling people sir, mister, missus, pastor, reverend. Officer, doctor, we don't want, well, those are just barriers, right? We don't want to teach our kids to have barriers. This, you know, that's, this Jesus is into the, into the titles because they mean something. He says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, and so I am to them, not to Judas, and not to the people he's turned his back on, and not to the world, because Jesus does not love the world. He loves humanity, and out of humanity, the people that he loves to the full extent are the people that he is pulling out of the world. And he says, If then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you a pattern, I have given you an example, that you should do just as I have done to you. Now, there are some people who think that the third sacrament is the washing of feet. There are people who feel that that should be instituted as an ordinance of the church. But Jesus doesn't say, do what I did. He said, do as I did. That particle there, the word as, is very important. Because he's saying, as, John, as Paul writes in, in uh, the, uh, the passage we just read in Philippians, he says, have the same mind as Christ. Do as, as he did. Do as I am doing. He didn't say, do it. Do what I have done, but do as I have done. And that is, is that don't be afraid to be a servant. Because you don't lose anything. Jesus didn't lose anything. And he says, and you do, that, you do that in a community of people. Notice here, he's saying he's building a new, do it to one another. Who's one another? All the people that God is calling to himself, through Jesus Christ, to the community of faith, the church. This is where we wash each other's feet in a way that we see a person needs to have their feet washed. They need it. It's not just literally having their feet washed, but how can we serve somebody? But we can't serve somebody if we don't have understand the one who served us. Because then it becomes moralism. Then it becomes ethics. Then it becomes a to-do list. And if you think that I got, there's a list out there that God says, oop, you did that good, oop, you did that good, and you come up with a list, you feel good about yourself. And the Bible says you shouldn't feel good about yourself. You should feel good about Jesus. If I boast, Paul writes, I boast in the cross. Why? Because that is where I see the love of God. 
And sacrificing this self-giving love, this agape love, is what Jesus is all about. Now, you see how different it is than me talking about, we all got to get together and let's have a service and I'll wash your feet and this is what we're all supposed to look like and it just helps us sing kumbaya. It just helps us all feel good. Now, I'm not telling you that we shouldn't be servants. I think if we, if we come to understand how important that is, that changes everything that we are to be servants. It is not who we are, but who we represent by serving. Changes everything. Husbands to wives, wives to husbands, children to parents. Imagine if we loved as Jesus loved, how different a church would be. Do you think maybe the church would be in the situation it is if people loved as Jesus is telling them to do in chapter 13? Not only Hope Church, but the epidemic that's hits many churches that I've been involved in. This is how we do it. He says you love one another. As, you, as I have loved you, you loved one another. Oh, he's going to say that. We're going to go on. I'm not going to... Bull, spill the beans for the next couple of sermons, but this is what he talks about before we get to the end of chapter 13. Turn with me to Galatians 5.13 and we'll end there. See, by becoming a slave, you don't lose your freedom, you gain freedom. Verse 13 of chapter 5 of Galatians. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity to serve yourself. But through love, and what kind of love? The self-giving love of Jesus. Serve one another. That's, that's this, this is what he's talking about here. That's why it's so important as we think about this this ordinance and this sacrament that this is what servanthood is all about he gave his life for us and we associate with that but people if we do not repent of our sins if we do not feel that we have to repent of our sins if churches don't preach about sin people are not going to feel that they have to repent about anything they just have had been victims of life victims of stuff going on in their life and they've just been human beings to respond to it the way the best they could and so god's getting the business of forgiveness so he better forgive me and that's heresy that's a lie that's a deception that's idolatry and that's why churches as i said last week how many churches you thought about next last week would have spoken on human freedom on the on the bondage of the will judicial hardening and and, and the functional uh, judgment of god not only once, maybe decades and centuries, the church has talked about this stuff. The word of propitiation, expiation. They probably never talked about these words. Because it's not interesting. It doesn't pull people in. It doesn't gather people. It doesn't make people feel good about themselves. And folks, I hope you realize by now, I'm not here to make you feel good about yourself. Because this is very, 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 very troubling that we don't live as we should live. I lied. 1 Corinthians 13. See, I need to repent from that. Now, you really want to be convicted, 1 Corinthians 13 will just kill you. Love is patient. Love is kind. We lost. We're done. We're over with. We can't go any further. Love does not envy, it does not boast, it is not arrogant, it's not rude, it doesn't insist on its own way, it's not irritable, it's not resentful, it doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. Love bears all things, what all things? All things that God gives. All things that God allows to take place. Therefore, everything works together for the good of those God called according to his purpose. These all things... Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. That's the convicting love that, that Jesus is talking about here, that John is writing about, that the Bible talks about. This is the love that we're supposed to have. But folks, we need to have an object of that love to show us, and that's what Jesus did. Jesus said to Peter, Peter, you understand it, but you don't understand it now. And can you imagine? I mean, Jesus is... is you know, as he confronts those, those on the road to Emmaus, 
They said, you know, if you were here with Jesus, you would be as sad as us. And Jesus saying, it's me, guys. I'm the one it happened to. Didn't I tell you this? And all of a sudden, your lights are going on. And then you read the, God, we read the book of Acts, and the book of Acts just goes, wow, the light came on. The light's on. We've seen Jesus ascend, and he says, you're going to be my witnesses. Witnesses of what? Witnesses that Jesus loved us to the full extent. He loved us till the end. And I hope these phrases, besides all the other stuff I filled in the middle, I hope it's a, you know, one of those squishy sandwiches that you squeeze and it just runs out. That's what my hope is every week, that you got so much that you just, you open the bread, you open the bread up and you look at it and you're going, whoa, that's tough to make a sandwich out of that. But so that's it, you push it, and if you can't get your mouth on it, so what? You cut in pieces that you can eat it. And that's what happened here. I mean, look at the stuff in John 13. It's amazing. And this is what this is all about. This is why we have to remember that we needed to be bathed, and Jesus needed to die, and we needed to come to God on, on God's term, and we need to realize that we are sinners, and we need to realize that we need forgiveness from Jesus, and we need to realize that that not only ends there, that's where it all begins, with our living our lives out. If we love Jesus as he has loved us, then we will love one another regardless. And, you know, I mean, folks, you and I know how we envy or we, we resist or we are rude or we are arrogant or we are impatient or people, you know, you just get troubled by people and so you just diss people off or you just get tired of people's personalities. I know I'm as guilty. I've been a pastor for 30 years. I know how people have irritated me and has caused me at times not to want to be around them or minister to them. Confession. So I know that how my sin is more than yours, because God's put me in this position. And I've been preaching about it, and I know that I'm going to be judged for that. And I ask God to forgive me, because I understand the weight of my sin. And I'm telling you that you are a sinner, and we understand the weight of your sin, so that when we come and eat this, we don't eat it because we're worthy. We eat it because Jesus is worthy. We come in a worthy fashion. What does that mean? We've been washed with a bath, and we've been given, and we understand that we need spun baths all the time. So, let's pray together. Dear Father, I pray for you to be with us as we partake upon to be obedient children, to be obedient brothers and sisters, to be obedient to you, O elder brother, Lord and Savior Jesus, that we would be able to see you as we eat and drink. We ask this in your name, Jesus.